Welcome to Gente in Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I'm the Center's Director, David Hayes Bautista, otherwise known as the Old Chicano Professor. This podcast is an extension of the research that we have been a part of for many years, actually going on to many decades. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of Gente and Health. Tonight's guest is a very special guest, Daniel French, who is Mohawk Chicano with an MFA, Master of Fine Arts, and is primarily a storyteller from Los Angeles. He happens to be a multi-instrumentalist composer, an MC, and a playwright. And he creates stories that take many forms, most notably heard in his band, Las Cafeteras Recordings. French has performed on stages from Bonnaroo to the Hollywood Bowl, WOMAD to Montreal Jazz, and beyond. Rocking shows with diverse acts like Michael Franti, Natalia Forcade, the Gypsy Kings, and Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Building on his band's taste for blending old and new, French continues to experiment, blending acoustic and traditional sounds with modern frequencies and telling stories that demand telling. You can hear Daniel's music featured in award-winning shows like Camo Bell's United Shades of America, Party of Five in 2020, the Telemundo telenovela Bajo el Mismo Cielo, and even the Nobel Prize Summit. Most recently, French composed the score for Powerlands, a feature-length documentary. Ah. Most recently, French composed the score for Powerlands, a feature-length documentary currently in the festival circuit. He's composed music with collaborator composer Ginger Shankar, as heard on Canon commercials, PBS documents, and most recently, a sweep for the Netflix thriller Heart Shot. Daniel holds his MFA, Master in Fine Arts, in Socially Engaged Arts at Otis College of Art and Design. You can follow his creative journey at, at, arroba, French is Mexican. Hard to miss, Danny French, French is Mexican. So, Danny, tell us a little bit about your journey into music, what got you involved, and how that evolved, as you wish to share with us. Profe, it's so uh, so lovely to be here with you today and your lovely audience. Um, uh, I got started in music. Uh, I got started in music when I was in middle school. Um, I was at the at the church I was attending at the time. I was asleep because I stayed up playing video games all night, and my mom had to be there early. And when I turned on the lights in like the youth room at the church. Uh, I was sitting on this uh, like old 70s couch that was donated to them. And I woke up and I saw in this glorious light a pair of bongo drums. And these bongo drums called to me. I don't know what it was. I just had to play them. So I started banging away and banging away. And I heard the door open. And this guy is looking at me. And I thought, man, I'm in trouble. I'm messing with God's drums. So... This this guy walks in and he says um, he says hey and I said I, I'm I'm I don't I'm, uh, he says hey it's fine it's fine I'm I'm just looking for Randy and I said oh, I don't know where Randy is uh, but he left and I kept playing the bongos and you fast forward the youth service happened an hour or so later uh, the youth band played and after the church service the youth pastor walked up to me and he said um, hey do you know any percussionists we're looking for one for the band. I mean, I'm in middle school, right? So I'm like, ah, no, I, I don't know anybody. I'm a nerd. Like, I play video games, like, and like, watch Star Wars. Like, and he said, well, I saw you playing the bongos. That sounded pretty good. And I said, well, uh, I, 
I don't really know what I'm doing. And he said, well, look, I'll make you a deal. You just keep not knowing what you're doing with us. And that's it. That's the deal. And I looked at him and I nodded. And then they invited me to rehearsal. And, and that was the beginning of my music career was, was not knowing what I was doing and just trying it. And that's something that has led me through most of my life, just uh, feeling a desire to accomplish or create something, express something, and just looking to see if my bandmates are making weird scrunchy faces, like as if, if I'm making the wrong notes. <laughs> so that, that's kind of, I've just kind of figured it out as I've gone mostly. Um, and then over time, I started taking some lessons with some people and started finding some mentorship, which is really um, catapulted my creative journey forward. Um, Excellent. Excellent. Well, obviously, you are a storyteller, and stories build upon a narrative. Yes. And I've noticed that a lot of the work you do is about actually changing narrative and being able to tell our story our way. Yes. So can you tell, talk with us a little bit about your creative process and your process of storing, storytelling? Yeah. I mean, I'm really fascinated with, uh, with characters, like the characters in my life. Um, I'm, I'm love like my neighbors, like all of my neighbors are characters. We've got, you know, boxers and electricians and construction workers and like entrepreneurs and elders and kids and, so I get a lot of inspiration from my own family, the people I've spent the most time with, uh, from my bandmates, who I've spent probably more time with, traveling the world and being on tour. And um, a lot of those people end, end up finding their way into a song, a music video, or a play. Um, I also am really inspired by sounds. Like, sometimes I'll just go outside, especially now in springtime, and I'll hear the birds chirping in a certain way and they'll make a rhythm like a well that's they might give me a melody they might give me a freebie right there and i might just pull it right into a song so for me i'm always listening to my environment um, but i'm also always listening to old stories i'm really inspired by like traditions traditional music so either from my my tribe traditional mohawk music or um from the sort of canon of Mexican-American experience, songs like La Bamba that I heard in the movie La Bamba growing up. Um, and then taking it like with my band and changing the lyrics and learning that we can tell our own stories through a story that's already been established. And that actually a lot of these traditional forms were just people telling their story through the shape of a certain rhythm and set of chords and instruments. And I feel like, I'm I'm inspired by my traditions, the traditions I come from, but also the traditions I've I've come to learn because they've kind of freed me up to realize that all the old stuff is just people telling their stories. All the things that we've considered as canon that you can't change was people just saying, hey, this is what we experienced. These are the challenges we had. This is the love that we had in our lives. This is the beauty we had and, and the the darkness that we had in our lives. And somehow our ancestors, our, the people before us, they made beauty out of hard times. They, they, they squeezed water out of rocks and, and gave us a river of knowledge and wisdom. So, um, I, you know, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk like that all day if you don't stop me. But that, that's the kind of stuff that inspires me and uh, part of my process, I think, when it comes to telling stories. Well, actually, I want to drill down a little bit. Uh... 11 
years ago. That's right. Was the the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Puebla that took place on Cinco de Mayo, 1862. Mm -hmm. I had pushed to get a book out. I wrote a book published by University of California Press. And at breakneck speed, I wrote a book, got it reviewed, did the revisions, and actually chose the cover. And in January of 2012, we were able to sort of say, oh, the book's been written. Cinco de Mayo is coming up in four months. We need to do something. <laughs> and among other things, Seda Santiso Greenwood said, well, I work with this dance troupe. Maybe we could do something with music and dance. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the idea, but now this is remember like end of January, we're thinking of Cinco de Mayo, which would be about three months ahead. So I went and talked with you and your group and I made a presentation about the book. Just why do we celebrate Cinco de Mayo here when it's not celebrated in Mexico? Mm -hmm. And you stepped forward and said, I want to write a teatro about this. Mm -hmm. And you did. <laughs> and the music got written and the dances got developed and the dancers learned them and the costumes got made. And on Cinco de Mayo, the curtain went up and we had a complete teatro called El Cinco de Mayo made in California, mm -hmm. which it was. Mm -hmm. And telling this new story about the, if you will, the origin story of Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. But you were central to this. You pulled together a script and, well, talk to us about the process. Most people take years to write a script. You did this. <laughs> In far less than years. Yeah, I don't. I think you were. We were talking earlier, and I think, I think it was a matter of weeks or a month. I mean, it was kind of crazy. I, 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 I remember immediately taking. Uh, I sat down with uh, Cynthia Chamberlain, the historical consultant there on your team, um, and I just. I, at first I was really excited and then I was really terrified to ruin the story that you had crafted. <laughs> and then that's what's cool is that you were able to take all of this research and share, like bring me into the archives and show me what you had gathered and working with you, working with Cynthia initially, then, then it was helping me understand, well, like how did people, the gold rush, like. How, how did people get the gold? Where were they bringing it from? How did people transport? How did, like trying to bring myself, induct myself into the reality of that time in California and then for Latinos who were here. And and then it was just like, okay, well I started, you, you had all these characters, like all these personalities with their photos and bits about them and their stories. And so I just started digging through your profiles of, of people that, that, that real characters. And then I thought about, well, you know, I like uh, Pio Pico, but I wonder if he's got like, I wonder whatever happened to Pio Pico's kids. And maybe when he's got a relative still hanging around Los Angeles. And so I kind of went down this process of trying to bring people to life and put them in situations and then act like people I know, right? Based on what I knew about them. And so that was it. It was just trying to breathe the life into the research and put people in situations that I felt would make them feel alive and human. And, you know, I asked you, Profe, when, when you you gave us the, the pitch to Las Cafeteras to get involved, and, and I asked you, well, what's your goal? How far do you want to take this? And I remember you telling me, I want everybody in California to know this history. I want it to be as common knowledge as Pepsi and Coca-Cola. Well, that's when I said, it's got to be a play. And then I said, well... Uh, and you were looking at me like, uh-huh. And then I said, okay, well, I could write it for you. And you said, uh-huh. And then I said, okay, so when do you need it? Bye. <laughs> um, 
And and so it, it, I I went to storyboarding and I put it all together and I showed y'all drafts and you didn't hate them and you gave me feedback and slowly but surely we crafted uh, what I hope is a really cool like distilling of this multifaceted story, not just about Cinco de Mayo, but also um, the roles that Latinos played in the state of California at the time and the ways that they shaped um, the ways that they shaped the future of the United States and the future of Mexico. And I think that is really beautiful. It's something that gave me a lot of energy because it was, I felt like you were uplifting and, and later in the play, I was able to try to lift up the poetry, the poetics of painting our people as leaders, as heroes, as innovators, as people who were everyday people doing their best, coming together with interests in common to try to make something more of themselves and their community and to change the world so that their kids could have a better life, which is how I was raised is how we all got here. So yeah, that, that's a little bit about the, the, you know, about the process. And, and then from there, it was like, well, what do they dance? How do they, I mean, everybody dances, like what, what were their jams or were their favorite jams? And then, you know, working with the team, we were able to dig up some of these stories and, and some of the music and um, the dance company, it, it just came together. And now, now it's a full story on its feet. And even the costumes that the dancers wear that your mother made. Um, can you just share her process with us briefly? I mean, was, this all happened in three months. It was so fast. It was. It was. Uh, so, yeah, that was part of the process, too. We were we had the movement, right? We had the dance company. We had um, music. We had a play uh, in formation. And, of course, we needed period costumes. And, thankfully, you had gathered all of these gorgeous photos from the time period so we knew what people were wearing uh what californios latinos in california at that time were wearing and so yeah my mom is a costume designer uh she has a company called alicia's costumes and she designed them all she went and made the costumes from the picture and <laughs> put a california uh vintage costume reproduction on every actor and that to me was nuts it, it it felt like it we were there and and i think that's when i started going the direction of making it also a site specific play making it a california specific play and even a los angeles specific play right there to the very site where many tongva and indigenous uh, native americans folks from from los angeles are buried and and to put it on this site and to say hey this is a specific story from a specific time um, and we're going to keep it that way. We're going to let it lift up who we were then and, and hopefully uh, paint a picture for where we're headed next. Well, there's so many wonderful facets to the story that you pulled together. Uh, just one last thing on the costumes. Uh, just right before COVID, we went out to Santa Paula to do a presentation of our theater. It was primarily to high school and community college students. So there were maybe about 300 students in this big hall. Mm -hmm. So our dancers were uh, in their dressing room, which was uh, one floor up. And then there was a big balustrade stairway coming down from the first to the second floor. So they had gotten in their costumes. We hadn't started anything. They were just simply moving from one floor to the other to get in place. But as they came down the stairs, the costumes were so striking 
that the entire audience burst out in applause and cheers. I mean, it's like something they had never, ever seen before, and yet they could relate to it. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. That's so beautiful. And my mom is amazing with her ability to see something and create it. And I think that I got that from her. I think that I, I was able to write a play um, and write music because I grew up seeing her take scraps of, of costumes or different pieces and shape, shape, shape like Edward Scissorhands and just chop, 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 chop and so, 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 so. And then all of a sudden a masterpiece. And so I think we're all made by the people who made us. Uh, in one way or another. So I'm, I'm so glad to hear that people were moved by that. And we use some of those same outfits today, 11 years later. Wow. Such a great piece of work. Beautiful. Okay. So through all of that, share with us just how you have changed your view on what is Cinco de Mayo. One of the things I put in the play when I was trying to think about my average person in my life, my cousins, my neighbors watching the play um, what would move them or what would make this relevant or how might they think about seeing something like this on a stage? I thought about how people usually celebrate Cinco de Mayo and usually or, or the most common expression of Cinco de Mayo for American culture is Drinco de Mayo. It's getting drunk, Mexican beer, tequila. Now, now more people are drinking mezcal and kind of just parting up with sort of this pan-Latin, semi-Mexican kind of thing that people don't even know why. And so that was kind of a fun journey, too, to add, like, these guys who are at Olvera Street to have that kind of celebration. And they stumble across the ghost of Pio uh, Pico. They stumble across this deeper history while they're there. And to try to put, I guess, the reality that we see in our day-to-day -day lives up against this this uh, true story of Cinco de Mayo and to see what they look like together to hopefully give the viewer a chance to see somebody that they know in relation to this play. I feel like history can't be distant from us. It has to, We have to bring it closer and make it feel relatable. So that's something that I was trying to get at, which brings me to your next point, which is where is Cinco de Mayo headed? Um, more and more people are drinking mezcal, which is great. Um, uh, Benito Juarez was the president at the time in Mexico. He initiated a bunch of reforms in the 1800s. And of course, mezcal comes from Oaxaca. He was Zapotec, indigenous. Um, the land of mezcal is Oaxaca. And so people people know the, the spirit, but they don't really know the story. They know the day, they don't know the story. And so how do we... How do we bring this stuff alive? And that's something I'm excited about, uh, Profe, that to, to bring about, to find different cultural ways that we can bring this story, not just uh, from the page to the stage, but from the stage to the classroom, from the classroom to the boardroom, um, to invite all of the members of California, from the ad agencies, from schools, from professors, uh, doctors like yourself, to everybody to play a role in shifting Cinco de Mayo culture to say that, hey, we're going to keep celebrating it because it was celebrated for the last 150 plus years because it gave us an inspiration to fight for our rights, to fight for the rights of others, to stand up against slavery, to stand up against white supremacy, and to make something of our, of our present for those who are coming in the future. And I think 
that's something I'm really passionate about is changing the way we celebrate Cinco de Mayo, adding more meaning. It's lovely that we hear uh, mariachis and um, baile folclorico and all these different expressions of Mexican and Mexican-American culture. And I want to see every place in the state of California recounting the real history of Cinco de Mayo, singing the songs of Cinco de Mayo. That's, that's why I'm writing an album. Uh, of, of music, the Cinco de Mayo album to to get this story across, um, just like the Olin brothers did with Chavez Ravine and um, and Ray Cooter as well. And so um, we have to make the stories popular. We have to bring it to something that you can bump in your boombox while you're riding down the road in your car or at the beach and make it popular. And that it's what it was, and that's what we're making it again so that we don't lose ourselves in the mirror. We don't forget who we are. We find ourselves in the party, yeah? I, I don't think that dancing and partying was just to forget. It was also to dance through the hard times and through the fun into another side, into tomorrow with that energy and that joy that, that, that helps us build something new. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. Um, you had a lot of different storylines and I love how you foregrounded the indigenous voice, but also you chose to foreground the Afro-Mexican voice through the character of Pio Pico. Mm -hmm. Could you just uh, share with us a little bit about what was going in your head as you were doing that? Yeah, it was great to uh, be able to have, um, so when, when we first did the play, it was right there at La Plaza de Cultura y Artes in Elvera Street in Los Angeles in downtown LA and across the street is uh, the is it the Pico House Hotel mm -hmm. yeah the Pico um, House mm -hmm. and so it's you know we have all this downtown history and I thought wow how cool so few people know Pico Boulevard right so many people there's Pico Pico Middle School like there are so many things in Los Angeles County named after Pio Pico um, and tied to that story but most people don't know that that the last governor of this state was a black Mexican. And in, I think it's really important to lift that up. And it was a great opportunity uh, to highlight that in the show because the, the, the people in Los Angeles were very mixed. There was a lot of ethnic diversity, uh, di different of course than today, but a great diversity. And a lot of people worked together or found ways to forge alliances in that time across that difference to make things happen. And I think it's a great schematic. It's a great blueprint for us in Los Angeles now to also continue on the tradition of building together, um, forging alliances that can help us see new possibilities together. And so it was great. It was it was fun to have Pio Pico sort of be the ghosts uh, wandering around Olvera Street and kind of seeing the present day how people were celebrating and taking us back inducting us back into his his time and what he remembered um and then to find also uh that uh maybe one of the people who was having a, and to find also that one of the characters who was doing a drinko de mayo thing was actually related to pio pico that he actually was a blood relative and here in los angeles so I think that's the funny thing about history too, is we never know who we're tied to, We, unless you know, right? You don't know where you come from. If you don't know where you come from, how will you know where you're going? And I, I wanted to kind of plant that forward as well, not just that we had a black Mexican governor in Alta California, but also that that's us, that some of these historic figures or the people who lived in those times are our relatives. 
um, including the, the Tongva people of this land and all the people named and unnamed in this play. So history is such a beautiful thing when we can lift it up and and uh, hopefully make it relevant again. You know, we, it's, it's, we need to lift up these stories in California and celebrate all the diversity of the people who are here and who, who built this place, who took care of this land before anything was built here and will care for it after. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, well, can you share with us what you're currently working on? You sound like you have a lot of irons and a lot of fires. Yeah, so I'm working on, um, I'm working right now. I'm working on a solo record, um, some brand new music, uh, some country, some folk music, some things in Spanish and English and Mohawk and my tribal language. Um, I've been really working on my language a lot lately and just trying to get better at that. It's something that I didn't grow up with. But I think uh, it's it's part of this journey of reconnecting with my roots, and um, yeah, so that's something. I'm also let's see what else am I doing. I'm also doing a Cinco de Mayo album, like I said. So I'm working on uh, songs. In fact, this Cinco de Mayo, I'll be sharing brand new songs to kind of distill and concentrate the history of Cinco de Mayo into short songs that people can kind of get in English and Spanish. Um, I'm uh, composing some new work and doing some uh, some work for film that I can't say publicly, but I'm excited to just be creating new music. And um, I think now's the time for stories. I, I'm also another thing I'm working on is is helping some some organizations in California with their storytelling, and that's something I'm really passionate about. I'm helping uh, some folks who do movement work and frontline community organizing and, and who are building uh, the state of California up, um, but can use some help integrating arts and culture into that process. And I think that that's something that I've been able to do with Las Cafeteras to take our stories around the world and back to even have the president of the United States and presidential candidates talking to us and about our art. Um, and I, those are some things that I'm excited to bring to the table for movements and efforts that I care about in California because I feel like we need a lot of change. And, um, you know, at, perhaps as an outro, I, I think that this whole play, Cinco de Mayo, is not about uh, forgetfulness. Cinco de Mayo is about remembering where we come from. It's about remembering the struggles before us and the great state of California, how people in California came together in a hard time to create and innovate a new way forward. They pulled their resources, they pulled their gold, their energy, their fuerzas, women and men, largely women, and paved the way for a new future. And now is the time to do that. And, and looking 100 years forward, where are we headed? What kind of state are we building for the, our future grandchildren? What, how are we going to deal with water and traffic and climate change? We have to address these things. And, and Cinco de Mayo is ironically all about looking back so we can get forward. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. That sounds like something that Governor Pio Pico would have said. So, <laughs> yes, 160 years ago, Latinos took to the streets in the American West and towns and cities, California, Nevada, Oregon, to let the world know where they stood on the issues of the Civil War. They opposed slavery. They supported freedom. They opposed white supremacy. They supported racial equality. They opposed monarchical plantation rule, and they supported government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I believe Juarez said that before Lincoln did. Mm. So any last words or bits of advice you would give our listeners, those who are interested in music, history, society? 
Yes, I, I think that um, if we want to, I think if we want to change, I think that if we want to make a change in the world, we have to change our culture. If we want to change our culture, we have to change the story that we tell. And so I want to just inspire and encourage everybody to think about your role. Are you a teacher? Are you a parent? Are you a cousin? Are you a neighbor? What's your role in setting this record right? What's, you, what's your role in spreading the word about the true meaning of this holiday? Um, and, and how can you take it back? I, I guess I'm offering more questions than answers because I feel like the answer is up to all of us. The weight needs to be shared by the whole state of California and really the whole country so that we can go back to Mexico and bring meaning to this day. And we can say, yeah, we celebrate this day. It's not just a day of throwing back mezcal, which, hey, I love mezcal, but it's about going back to say, we know where we come from. We come from Mexico, if we come, for those of us who are Mexican, we come from here, but also we know where we're headed. And we're, we're coming back to you aware of that, not ignorant of who we are. And so I'm really excited about the future and I'm excited about the things that, um, I'm really excited about the people who are who are inviting you, folks like me and, and the dance company to invite these stories, to, to light a spark and a fire throughout the state of California to change the way this story is told, to, to create a new blueprint for how we celebrate in Cinco de Mayo. And I hope that that will spark a new blueprint for our state and where we're headed. So um, Dr. Hayes Bautista, thank you so much for having me back again, for believing in a uh, young native Chicano artist to uh, breathe some life into your story and uh, for and Las Cafeteras and, and for continuing to sound the alarm and to sound the party uh, that it's time for us to be who we are and remember where we're headed. Wonderful. Exactly. We are who we are and that's the best thing to be. And, and doctor, if I could, just one more thing. Uh, I want to make sure that we acknowledge some of the people who helped make this happen. 11 years ago, we took uh, your amazing book uh, and all of this research, and I got to work with uh, Cynthia Chamberlain on the research side in particular, the whole team at CESLAC, Margarita Reyes, Laura, uh, Laura Jones, uh, Seda Santiso Greenwood. It was a whole team effort just to make this happen and also to put up with this uh, playwright and make sure that he took things to the finish line. Uh, Jimena Martin over there at La Plaza de Cultura y Artes. Hector Rodriguez, the director. We had Raquel Ramirez with Ballet Folclorico Flor de Mayo, who uh, brought all the choreography and the, all the dance crew together and ensured that all of the rehearsals happened. Uh, we had Ernie G, who was the host of that first day. Um, and now we have Adriana Valdez, who's the current uh, producer of the show. And it's been beautiful to see how from 11 years ago, how everyone has grown, their families have grown, people have taken on new roles. And I think there's no greater point to make than that it takes a community to make something magical happen from San Cinco de Mayo to today. And I would like to add one more person really key in that, uh, former supervisor Gloria Molina, who at this moment is very ill. When I mentioned to her back in 2011, a year before the 150th anniversary, that I was writing a book, she said, we need to do something here at La Plaza next year, at least a book signing, maybe something more. And she opened the doors for us at La Plaza. She has been a great supporter. She was the keynote speaker on opening night, Cinco de Mayo, 2012. And the Plaza de Cultura y Arte is one of her pet projects. It was one of her last projects as outgoing supervisor, and it's been a gift 
that keeps on giving to the community of Los Angeles. Thank you so much, Gloria Molina. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you all for listening to Daniel French. And please remember to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so. Oh, and by the way, if you'd like to support us, go to our website and click on our support us button. Any and all contributions to CESLI are greatly appreciated and will help us to continue our work with our podcast, our research, public service, and educational activities. This week, our executive producers are Adriana Valdez and Seda Santiso Greenwood. This episode was written by our executive producer, Seda Santiso Greenwood, Adriana Valdez, and our writers, Brandy Lopez and Gisela Hernandez. Editing was provided by Elias Rodriguez, and music this week was provided by Mariachi de Uclatlan. Tune in for the next episode as we delve further into topics of Latino culture, gente, and health. Thank you.